Freedom Hut. A black Portland police officer speaks the truth about racist BLM protesters. Twitter gets hacked. Hold the line against COVID panic. An NYPD chief says cops are handcuffed by politics. And the Trump campaign makes a change. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. I can speak for three hours without a phone call. Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome, my friends, to the Buck Sexton Show. Great to have you here with me, as always. Thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us today as we go through everything that is happening across the country. I wanted to start with some recognitions that I think are finally coming to the forefront. For those who are honest and paying attention and looking at what's really happening in the country, you have a few things. One, the uh, the theory out there that we need to have a national lockdown or a series of rolling lockdowns at the national level is completely insane. I've been consistent on this. I'll explain why. But I, I believe people are starting to recognize this is just a non-plan plan. There, there's no... There's no good explanation for doing this unless it's a very short term reduction in cases in a very specific area only for the issue of hospital capacity. But we'll return to that later. Not not because, oh, my gosh, this state has a lot of cases. That's not a good reason to lock down. But also, what has the BLM movement achieved so far? What what has been the upside of this movement? That was uh, not just supported, but bowed down to by corporate America. What have we gotten from this? How has it made anything better? Some of our major cities are markedly less safe, provably, demonstrably more violent. There's been millions of dollars of property damage. No one can really calculate what's going to happen in some of the neighborhoods in places like Minneapolis that were burned out, looted. How long is that going to last? Are you going to want to buy a home right next to where they just had a BLM protest come through and burn down a CVS or burn out a a grocery store? Probably not. So really now, this movement that has been around for a few months, you look at it and say, hold on a minute. What is it doing for us? What is it really all about? Now, I've known where we were heading with this, because I remember the last time there was a BLM movement. The media has no institutional memory when it comes to understanding why they were wrong the last time. Right. Whether it's you look at the, the treatment of, of Kavanaugh and why we should actually believe in evidence instead of emotion, or you look at the way that they've just completely and, and utterly debased themselves over the Russia collusion nonsense, never learning any lessons, you know, maybe just some random leak from a former intelligence, uh, former intelligence officer does not, in fact, mean that Putin was directing Trump in how to steal the last election. They, they never learn their lessons. I think it's intentional, but also they're they're pretty dumb. I mean, most journalists are, are stupid. Not all. Some are, are quite bright, but most journalists are pretty dumb. And I've dealt with Tons of them at this point now for the last decade. And uh, it's pretty it's shocking unless you've actually spent time around the news media. You really can't you, you really can't get a good feel for, wow, these people are uh, generally ignorant, 
deeply narcissistic and wildly political as Democrats. That's the the standard that you get for most of them. But Black Lives Matter hasn't done anything yet that any person who is judging this based on results would think is an improvement. You know, if you have a major political, a major political group that's out there on the streets, a political movement that's saying, you know, hey, we, we have the following demands. And some of the demands, you might say, I don't necessarily agree, but at least there'd be there'd be some improvement from it. Right. Something would be better if we did this. Maybe the trade off isn't worth it. But no, Black Lives Matter has only pushed for things that make everything worse for everyone. But it does, in making things worse, bring down Trump approval rating. It does show power, right, that they can just hold the country hostage to their demands, that they, during a pandemic even, can go out and completely forget about and get a pass on all of the social distancing and mask wearing. And I see people increasingly calling them face diapers, which I think I I tend to agree with. Uh, that that has been happening. And now we're also starting to find the tr- find out the truth about who's really involved in this movement. Who's really pushing this? You know, in the early days, uh, there were a lot of people that lived in. Th- there were a lot of minorities who lived in communities. And this is just based on the video footage you'd, you'd see on the news and the leaders of the movement um, who would be talking about police violence and police brutality and that gave a, a certain credibility, at least, to the movement having some uh, some honest feelings behind it. Now, whether you agree with that being widespread, uh, widespread, honest feelings or not, that's a, a whole other part of this discussion. But now what you see increasingly are just crazy, bratty white kids running around, you know, 25, 30 year olds uh, who are running around and acting like maniacs. Because they have Trump derangement syndrome and they're using this they're using this shield of Black Lives Matter whenever they get, you know, over uh, overindulgent, whatever they do too much, they attack cops or whatever it is. Oh, this is about Black Lives Matter. Weren't we all arguing as a country about statues uh, about a week or two ago? What happened to that? Oh, you mean it wasn't really about the statues? It's also not really about the killing of George Floyd, my friends. This movement is not really about any of the things they've told us it's about. It's just find areas that are emotionally volatile, find areas where there's a damage to the national psyche, exploit them, make people angry, give them an outlet for all the rage and all the frustration that we feel because of these unnecessary shutdowns that we've been put through for months now. And... You have a great mobilization tool for the Democrat Party, getting the base energized and making everybody else in the country who just wants to go back to life miserable and scared that they're going to say the wrong thing and get fired from their job, that they're going to, you know, go too far with one thing and there'll be a problem. Uh, You know, they'll say something online and all of a sudden their business will be boycotted. So what's this movement's ethos, really? Who's pushing it? I said to you, there are a lot of... um, you know, white liberals, young white liberals who have taken over much of the activity here. And what are they like? You know, because they tell us that they're anti-racist. And now if you don't sign on for their agenda, you are not, in fact, an anti-racist. You have to do that or else 
you're kind of complicit in racism. That's the the way they structure this. That's the way they set it up. And you have a Portland police officer, Officer Jackson, who gave an interview. And you know, you won't see this on the mainstream news channels. Gave an interview where he, where he explains. Now, this is a this is a a black police officer in Portland, Oregon, talking about what it's like to try and deal with these protesters who the media refers to as mostly peaceful, anti-racist, anti-fascist, and all about black lives. Well, here's a black cop telling you what he thinks about these protesters. Play clip two. It says something when you're at a Black Lives Matter protest, you have more minorities on the police side than you have in a violent crowd. And you have white people screaming at black officers. You have the biggest nose I've ever seen. What was it like in that capacity in the first few weeks when the fence was up around the Justice Center? I got to see folks that really do want change like the rest of us that have been impacted by racism. And then I got to see those people get faded out by people that have no idea what racism is all about. Never experienced racism. They don't even know that the tactics that they are using are the same tactics that were used against my people. And they don't even know their, they don't even know the history. They don't know what they're saying. Coming from someone who graduated from PSU with a history degree, it's actually frightening. You know, they say if you don't know your history, you repeat it. And watching people do that to other people. Here you have a very uh, eloquent black cop in Portland laying out for you something you won't hear on uh, mainstream news channels. You won't you won't see the New York Times writing this up. He is telling you what we all knew was going to happen here, which is that in the beginning, there are people who saw everyone saw what happened to George Floyd. said, my God, that's terrible. There needs to be accountability. And there will be people in that moment who really do want to address racism, want to look at police brutality, want, want to have a serious adult conversation about those serious and adult issues. But the left was never interested in that. It was always the the ignition point for the exploitation of their own political movement. It was never meant to be uh, a, a real structural change, not for the not for the apparatus of the Democrat Party and the left. And that's why, as this officer just told you, and he's been all along, Portland has been one of the that it's one of the tremendous hot spots for left wing the most aggressive left wing street protest activism stuff anywhere in the country probably the most active antifa chapter in the whole united states is in portland so this guy's been dealing this cop has been dealing with this for months and he's saying you know what this has really turned into a bunch of mostly white ignorant liberal you know millennials and uh, gen z who are showing up and saying incredibly truly racist things to a black cop real racism like you know nazi germany kind of racism stuff to a black cop and and they think they're they think they're fighting racism no they're just angry morons who have been indoctrinated by the democrat party and the media and all these different cultural institutions that are controlled by the left in this country that want to divide us by race that want to divide us in the most uh, vicious and irreparable ways. He's telling you. And he has more to say. Play clip three. 
a lot of times someone of color, black, Hispanic, Asian, come up to the fence and directly want to talk to me. Hey, what do you think about George Floyd? What do you think about what happened about this? I go up to the fence. Someone white comes up. F the police. Don't talk to him. That was the most bizarre thing because I could see it coming. I even had a young African-American girl uh, tell me, why is it you guys aren't talking to us? I said, honestly, this is now the 20, I think it was 23rd day of doing it. Every time I try to have a conversation with someone that looks like me, someone white comes up and blocks him and tells him not to talk. And then right when I said that, this white girl popped right in front of her. She said, he just said that was going to happen. I said, straight up. I said, you know, I've been called the N-word. She's been called the N-word. Why are you talking to me this way? Why do you feel that she can't speak for herself to me? Why is it that you feel you need to speak for her when we're having a conversation? Then when you go to a gentrified community, and the first, one of the first pictures I saw that well, one of the business that was looted was a, a black-owned business. I'm like, they, they, they're not even from here. They don't even know what they're even doing. This should be, this interview is a must-watch. Everyone across the country who cares about what's going on now with this Black Lives Matter movement, here you have a, a black cop who is completely sympathetic to the concerns of the minority community when it comes to actual racism and police civilian interactions and that's as i've said there there are instances of police brutality that are reprehensible and there should be a, there should be both accountability and transparency but that's a very different thing to say that you know one out of 10,000 or 50,000 cops is a racist who's going to to hurt black or brown people out of some animus is a very different thing than saying Cops are racist pigs, and we should show them no respect. To the point, which is what the libs are saying, which is what the Democrat BLM movement is saying, and to the point where they will have white kids go up to a black cop, as he just said, and use the N-word. I, I, I mean, you sit here and you say, how is this even possible? Because it for the actual movement and the apparatus of the left it's not about saving minority lives it's not even about minority lives that have been lost in the past george floyd or others it is about using points of emotion and division in our society for a broader political mobilization against their opposition which they view as uh, conservative right-wing trump america that's it all the other stuff is just a dodge. All the other stuff is a ploy. And unfortunately, it has been a largely successful one. But can you imagine? Listen to what this officer is saying. He says minorities at these protests, black and brown people at the protests, come up to him as a black man and want to have a real conversation about George Floyd. And I, I can see that. That makes sense. I get that. And you know what I'm sure this cop would say? That was terrible. That doesn't represent what I do or any of my colleagues here do every day. We all reject that. I've heard the entire NYPD from the top to bottom already say that. I'm sure this guy would say the same thing and has said the same thing. But then that would lead to more dialogue. And that would lead to perhaps more people who are concerned from the black and brown community about police violence having a greater understanding of police and the police having a better line of communication with them and things would actually improve. 
No, that's not what the white liberal kids want. No, they want to scream racial epithets at black cops while thinking they're fighting racism. These are all Democrats who are doing this. And I know people say, Buck, why are you making it political? Because it is political. That's all this is. It's not about improving society. It's about power and people thinking they are better than other people because of their beliefs. Black Lives Matter has already collapsed into incoherence and disarray. Except as a tool of rage and division, which is what continues to be useful to the Democrat Party. Reform? This was never about reform. Showing respect to black cops? That, you, you cannot tell me that a person cares about black lives and would, in, in their first interaction with a black police officer, show not just disrespect to the officer, but disrespect to him on account of his race and believe that this movement is not intellectually and morally rotten, because it is. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. But we have other cities that are out of control. They're like war zones. And if the city isn't going to straighten it out of local politicians, all in this case, I don't say this for political reasons. They're all Democrats. They're liberal, left-wing Democrats. And it's almost like they think this is going to be this way forever. We're in Chicago. 68 people were shot and 18 died last week. We're not going to put up with that. We're not going to put up with that. I, I hope the president's able to take action on this. They should send in additional federal law enforcement to assist. Clearly, the Chicago Police Department is incapable of bringing that violence curve down. If this is really about black lives, as we are told it is, and saving black lives, then the focus should be on where are lives being lost every single day? Not once every three to six months from the ha- at the hands of a police officer, but every single day. But once again, the Democrats don't care very much about that, do they? Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, but the defund the cops movement hasn't actually really happened yet, they'll say. The budgets may have been changed, but the funding doesn't change for for a while. To that, I, I just want to point out that it's not just about the dollars and cents being taken out of police budgets. It's also about the message that it sends. It's about the message that it sends on the streets to the bad guys, to the cops, who are the ones that have to make those in the heat of the moment, high risk decisions about what level of force to use, what bad guy to chase down the alleyway or not. How aggressive is their policing going to be against violent felons? Or they're going to say, look, unless we've got no choice, we're just not really going to exert ourselves to enforce the uh, enforce the law. And, and because they don't want to get arrested themselves and put on some kind of a public show trial with people like de Blasio, who are just looking for cops to make examples of all the time. You know, it used to be understood that if a cop was acting in good faith and applying his, his training properly, you know, they're, they're, it's not it's never a, it's never a pretty thing. This is what libs don't want to believe. It's never a pretty thing when you see someone who is fighting a cop 
to get taken down to the pavement and handcuffed. It, it doesn't look like, you know, two people in Western Europe having a, an espresso and having a nice chat. People are going to get hurt. There's going to be some, uh, you know, some cuts and bruises that happen. This is the re- this is the day to day reality of law enforcement. Which is why part of the movement that we should be having, if we're really going to talk about criminal justice reform and discussions, is how to interact with cops. That's actually an important thing to understand. And I, I know people don't usually talk about this, but every every cop that I know, and I've I've got a cop in my family. I've worked at the NYPD. I mean, I know a lot of cops. They will tell you that when respect is given, respect is reciprocated. And that's just the nature of police civilian interactions. When disrespect is the first thing that is thrown at the cop, that then shows a mentality that they will often react to more aggressively because one, they're trying to establish control and some authority in a situation. And two, they want to go home that night. The cop wants to go home to his or her you know, family. They, they don't want this. That, that's another part of the discussion that is never, uh, never prominent enough. Cops you know, want to pull their gun and use it on somebody. It, it's a, even if they absolutely have no choice but to do that. It's a nightmare. You know, they're going to get investigated. They're going to get uh, put on. You know, on desk duty or, or you know, suspended with pay pending investigation. And, you know, they might get sued in civil court. Even it's it's a nightmare. They do not want to do that. They all know that there is no jurisdiction in the country. Like, yeah, you know, just pull the trigger on a guy today. No big deal. You know, it just happens. No, that's not true. But we never get to have a discussion about this the way it is. We have discussions the way the media reflects this. And I mean, the cowards in our mainstream media who would call the cops the instant, the instant that they heard some ruffians walking across the, the backyard of their Hamptons estate. Ooh, good heavens. I hear it sounds like some fraternity brothers are running through the yard for a prank. Call the police. You know, that's who's telling you, yeah, defund the cops, defund the cops. Sure, they are. Police Commissioner uh, Dermot Shea has said that they are going too far now with the politics against the cops. And he said that the anti-cop sentiment, anti-cop sentiment, not just anti-police brutality, from the George Floyd protests are being used to further political agendas. Oh, wow. You mean the police commissioner of the biggest police force in the country under a far-left Democrat mayor has finally had enough and is like, this is just about hating cops. That's what this is. This is just about hating cops for some people and mobilizing people with that hatred. The masses, the anti-Trump, Trump deranged left with this as their main point of entry, with this as their rallying cry. And the people that that uh, uh, Officer Jackson in Portland mentioned, particularly black and brown individuals who want to have a constructive dialogue with police and want to express their concerns and reservations to cops. And I'm sure some of them have had poor treatment at the hands of police. We know that that happens. That, of course, no question. Those voices have been marginalized, pushed aside. This isn't about a constructive dialogue. Come on. Of course not. This is about crazy Wellesley masters in gender studies grads screaming in the face of police officers that they are betraying their people. That's what this is about. 
That's what you see at these protests. Okay, let's be honest. I've been to them and I've been doing nothing but watching and uh, and covering them. It's insane. So you got the NYPD commissioner telling us what what we know, but affirming it. This is about politics. The anti-cop stuff. BLM is not, you know, these protests. They're not making anything better with their Occupy zone in D.C. and the, the disaster in Seattle where people died because of that. People lost their lives. Because a bunch of left-wing morons thought that creating a police-free zone was a good idea. And then you have the agenda of the Democrat Party. What are the, what are the Democrats? You know, remember, there's, there's always, it's like, think of it like the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, um, and Sinn Féin, right? The, the political arm of the terrorist group, <laughs> That's that's how you have to think of elected Democrats in office. So you have this the street, you know, the street paramilitaries of Antifa. You have these people that are doing, you know, using violence and coercion and threats and mob mentality to get attention and to push issues. And then the Democrats in elected office in their fancy building in D.C. and wherever else in state capitals across the country, they're supposed to translate this into legislation that benefits the left. So this is just one hand washing the other. This is the one-two punch of the Marxists that we see in our own midst. And here's Chuck Schumer coming, coming coming through today with exactly what you'd expect. This is from Fox News. Quote, Senate Democrats released a $350 billion plan to tackle systemic racism and historic underinvestment in communities of color that have been hit hardest by the coronavirus pandemic and economic downturn. The Economic Justice Act calls for 10 major investments over the next five years to help communities of color with child care, health care, jobs programs, infrastructure improvements and housing assistance. Senate Democrats frame their proposal as a down payment. So it's just a beginning on calls to address systemic racism and economic disparities that have been spotlighted in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic and death of George Floyd. There's a growing movement underway for Congress to tackle these disparities through slavery reparations to African-Americans. This is the Chuck Schumer statement. Long before the pandemic, long before the recession, long before this year's protests, structural inequalities have persisted in healthcare and housing, the economy and education. End quote. Pay off the base, folks. That's what this is. Schumer is letting out. This is not going to go through. The the Senate Republicans are not going to go along with this, obviously. But this is this is now where you see what the real game plan is. Now, with people all all angry and talking about this and and racial tensions at this very high point, Democrats are saying, yeah, you know, what we need to do. We just need to write a check from the taxpayers bank account for $350 billion to tackle systemic racism. Write a check to uh, to communities of color and make sure that they come out in full force for Democrats this fall. This is a payoff. This, when, I, when I told you there's this mobilization, this has been the plan all along, right? This is what we, we knew that, that Dem- Democrats... Uh, weren't going to be able to do anything to make people safer or tackle tackle police issues in a meaningful way. That was all just a, a smokescreen. 
They are, look, Justice Scalia wrote in an affirmative action decision for the Supreme Court of a racial entitlement state. Senate Democrats are saying we need to just start paying people, giving people more resources based upon skin color. That is what they are saying. This is money for communities of color. We we want to shovel money to communities of color. Whatever happened to equal protection under the law? This is... We've gone so far beyond this now. Oh, and even reparations. They're talking about reparations now, um, which we know will will continue to come up here. This is classic quid pro quo power politics. This is the Democrats saying, all right, so the communities of color in this country have been their their issue of police tension has been exploited by the Democrats, predominantly by white liberals all across America. This issue has been exploited. And so now we're just going to say, let's give a lot of money to those communities in the hopes that they will, of course, come out and vote in the highest possible numbers this fall. This is a payoff. This is a payoff. It's what it's all. Now you're seeing what this was all really about. It's not about making people safer on the streets. It's not about stopping police violence. It's about creating the political momentum for Democrats like Pelosi and Schumer to promise to just flood left-wing interests, particularly in communities of color, but to just start writing checks out of your, out of your checkbook as the taxpayer to interests in groups that they like. That's, what the, that's always... That and the electoral impact that that promise has was always what this was about. So now, now, we're see- now it's all coming together. Now we're seeing it all. As for this as a justice movement, it's a fraud. It's a fraud. And what's, what's also sad is that even if they were to spend whatever this is, $350 billion, you think that, Cong- you think that the Congress with Democrats leading are going to spend $350 billion and systemic inequality goes away or, or racism evaporates. No, it's just, as I said, it's a down payment. The next call will be for half a trillion. And then the call after that will be for It's just about this is white liberals atop the Democrat Party finding out ways to stay in power by writing checks as payoffs to constituencies that they have convinced have no other choice in the political system and need to support them and will get paid for their trouble. That's what's going on. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. And what else are the libs offering other than payoffs to their base uh, with the taxpayers footing the bill? What what else are they promising they will do this fall? Uh, Well, on the energy proposal from Biden, because remember, climate change and renewable energy, green energy, the Green New Deal these are these are points of religious fervor for Democrats. You can't have a normal conversation with them. What makes sense? What doesn't? Because we're all going to die unless we listen to Greta Thunberg. Remember that? The same people who tell you they believe in science are like, listen to the 16 year old high school dropout about how we should spend trillions of dollars of money. Because of an incredibly complicated scientific issue for which there is no there is neither a crisis nor a cure. So that's how it is. But here you have the uh, here you have Trump pointing this out, I think, rightly. Play clip 12. 
Biden wants to massively re-regulate the energy economy, rejoin the Paris Climate Accord, which would kill our energy totally. And you'd have to close 25 percent of your businesses and kill oil and gas development. They still haven't explained what they're going to do to power our great plants and factories. But at some point, I'm sure they will. We'll learn that from AOC, who's in charge of energy. She's in charge, along with Bernie. It's AOC and Bernie are in charge of energy. I don't think Texas is too happy about that. What do you think? You think we'll call up the governor? Governor Abbott, great governor, will ask, how do you like that, governor? I don't think, I didn't want to waste the phone call because I wouldn't know how he felt. Since he's talking about Texas and energy, maybe we should hear from the energy secretary, Texan Rick Perry, play seven. You know, listening to that clip, it reminds me of Joe Biden looking into the camera and telling the NRA that I'm coming after you and I'm going to get all of your guns. He's looking into the eye of the American energy industry and basically saying, I'm coming after you and I'm going to get all of your jobs. Because that far left radical energy agenda that he talks about will be a massive job killer. I mean, hundreds of thousands of jobs in the oil and gas industry and the coal industry. I mean, all across the board. I mean, pipeline uh, companies, the union jobs that are being created out there. Uh, you know, if, if I'm a union guy in the uh, uh, in the energy industry, I stay away from Joe Biden like he's the plague. He's telling you the truth right? that there's going to be enormous job losses, but also just tremendous expense and cost for no benefit other than the ideological benefit that Democrats get from thinking that they're all saving the planet. We're saving the planet. Yeah. Captain Planet. He's a hero. You guys remember that was like, it was actually a superhero. It was not a very good cartoon, but I did used to watch a lot of cartoons as a kid called Captain Planet. He's always fighting against polluters. It wasn't, it wasn't a good cartoon. G.I. Joe was much better. Can't have G.I. Joe anymore. You know, military, guns. Oh, no, not allowed. Now it's all Teletubbies or whatever's cool now for kids. Rick Perry's telling the truth. This is what's going to happen, but Democrats are okay with that. Think about the way that they have completely justified in their minds the continued, and we're about to talk about lockdown and where we are with all that in the COVID era, but the continued lockdown of the country because it is obviously very bad for Trump if the country is locked down. And even though there's a lot of suffering that will happen because of this, even though there'll be a lot of destroyed, I mean, millions of people have jobs lost, businesses destroyed, maybe never come back. Bankruptcies are going to surge. Uh, we're, going, we're going to be unraveling a lot of the long-term costs of these lockdowns in the months ahead, no matter what. They're just adding to that tab, as well as the undiagnosed cancer and and the and the health issues and the overdoses, uh, drug overdoses, all these things we see from lockdowns. Democrats are unbothered by all of that because they know that it means Trump is in a weaker position to get reelected. Yeah. And also some of them are terrified of the virus because their own media outlets are constantly telling them that a virus that has a ninety nine point seven percent general uh, general survivability rate and over 80 percent, I think, is what I've seen recently of people have mild to no symptoms who get it. Um, that we should shut down the country again for. They want a national shutdown. Let's let's talk about that a little bit. That, that's an important place to go. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's gotten bad enough that even Donald Trump finally decided to wear a mask in public. I'm glad he made the shift. 
Mr. President, is not enough. We won't be able to turn the corner and get American people back to work safely without presidential leadership. Mr. President, open everything now isn't a strategy for success. It's barely a slogan. I mean, Joe Biden really sounds like he's going to fall asleep at the podium at any second when he's talking. And I mean, he's just going to, you know, just he's going to accidentally smack his face down on the on the podium and be at nap time. Look, Democrats don't care. I get it. We're all supposed to pretend like this isn't obscene. It is obscene that this is their presidential candidate. It's obscene. I mean, Hillary, say what you will. You know, she was sharp. You don't want to be on the wrong side of her. You definitely don't want to be. Uh, somebody that is on the bad side of the Clintons. We could all make a lot of jokes about that. I won't right now. Hello. But at least she was she was with it. Joe Biden is a is a total figurehead for the party, which is why the Bernie Sanders AOC input into his agenda is is so concerning because that's going to be the agenda. We all know this. There's no other. There's no moderate agenda. The Democrat Party more doesn't exist. They're just they're just putting out the old. You know, the old Biden guy out there. So it seems like they're not trying to make the country go socialist. Uh, But on the reopening point, uh, increasingly what I see here and I I told you a couple of weeks, I said, we'll we'll go back and revisit where we are now, um, where, where, you know, and we'll, we'll see who's right. We'll see who's telling the truth. And this this is what I can tell you. Uh, It's not as bad as the media is telling you which is, I'm sure, not surprising to any of you. Um, it's not as as horrific as you've been led to believe. And there's a lot of, um, meaning this re- most recent surge. The virus is very bad. We all know that. But I mean what, what we're seeing now in different hospitals. Uh, but the, the impetus for clicks and for politics to lie about this or to misrepresent the issue is so powerful that you can spend all day just trying to chase down the truth And then there's already a whole new set of lies that are out there. It's very hard to fight back against just this fire hose of misinformation, of disinformation about how, oh, now we're in a second wave. Oh, now we're we're finally the the back of the medical community is being broken by this. That's not true. We have and accepting the fatality numbers that that, that come in. We have we have well under a thousand fatalities a few a couple of days ago. It was more like in the four or five hundred range. You know, some days it's seven or eight hundred, but we are not seeing anything close to what we had at the real the real peak in New York, uh, where you had two to three thousand fatalities a day, depending on whose whose numbers. Remember, these numbers are also imperfect. We you see these stories about completely overloaded hospitals in Houston in particular and in some places in the Orlando area in Florida. That's also not true. No one has been denied care. I see this. People say, oh, the emergency rooms have a wait time of up to two to three hours. Emergency rooms always have a wait time that is forever. I mean, I, you know, it's amazing. Unless you have uh, a hatchet, you know, sticking out of the back of your head when you go in. And even then you might wait a little bit too long. Our emergency rooms are not uh, quick moving institutions unless they have absolutely no choice. So that's that's one part of this. ICUs tend to be at 80 to 90 percent capacity all the time because to have think about this. How could you have an ICU that's only 10 or 20 percent full and not run costs that would bankrupt the hospital? So they're, they're always trying to have ICUs that are getting full usage and that have the necessary capacity 
and have a surge capacity, but you don't run ICUs at 40% or 30%. People seem to think that hospitals try to operate with nothing but empty beds everywhere, getting ready for, no. No, we've gone through the whole empty bed scenario in New York where we had the floating hospital come up here from the Navy and we had the hospitals being set up in tents in Central Park and the Javits Convention Center, thousands of beds, almost entirely empty. And think about what New York was going through. The worst of the pandemic, the worst of the deaths and the numbers. But here, here's what I'm, I'm, I'm confident of right now. I can't tell you it's, it's absolutely the case, but I'm confident of. We're going to see the case number start to drop precipitously within 10 days from now. Oh, I mean, cases are going to start to go down precipitously in the areas where you've had this surge. You have not had a huge, huge change in the way people are living their lives. Yes, I know they've they've gotten they've changed some indoor dining. They've made some some switches here and there. Uh, but you're going to see this. You're going to see the numbers start to go down. And there's going to be this desperation to say, see, it's because we listened to the science and there were more masks. That's just not that's not realistic. That's not true. This virus increasingly when you look at the analysis of it from epidemiologists who just feel the need to try to tell the truth may have a much lower uh, may have a much lower herd immunity threshold hit is how this is abbreviated on in in medical um, uh, medical documents that you'll read may have a much lower herd immunity threshold than people realize uh, we've been told that herd immunity you have to be 70 70 to 80 percent of people would have to get infected for true herd immunity. Okay, well, think about this. If the herd immunity threshold takes into account T-cell immunity for coronavirus, general coronavirus exposure, it could actually be a much lower number of infected to get to that herd immunity threshold. I'm seeing analyses from doctors of something more along the lines of 20 20 to 30%. New York City already hit 20% based on serology testing, okay? New York City already was at a 20% infection rate, and, and they did some pretty, some pretty uh, widespread serology testing. And if you add to that T-cell immunity, so that's your, you know, the, the white blood cells in your system, their ability to go in and destroy the virus very quickly, very early on in the infection, you may have... You, you may have what is effectively herd immunity without us even really knowing it, which makes a lot of sense, because in New York, I can tell you we were on lockdown after there was this massive spread and the disease kept kept getting spread, kept getting spread all over the place. They, they act like, oh, you know, Cuomo with all this stuff. We brought down the curve. We did it. You, yeah, you listen to me and now things are better. You didn't listen to me and bad things happen. But no. That just doesn't that that doesn't bear any resemblance to the reality that people like me were living in at the time where we were on total lockdown, all wearing masks. And you still had cases all over the all over the tri-state area and a lot of fatalities. This virus, like other viruses, goes into an area. It spreads among the community until there's a there. It reaches a herd immunity threshold and then it moves on. That that seems to be. The only logical explanation for what is happening right now and why places that have not had about a 20 percent infection rate are seeing this huge spike in cases. There is no hiding from the virus. 
There's no avoiding the fact that there are going to be a lot of infections. The smartest policy all along, the smartest policy all along would have been to protect the vulnerable and take basic mitigation measures on a personal responsibility basis so that we didn't overload hospitals. Because that, that, that was a possibility, and it still is a possibility in some places. All this other stuff about you got to wear masks outside, mask, 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 do what we say, lockdown, lockdown, is just wrong. And there, you're hearing a lot less about Sweden right now because Sweden was a place that didn't do what it was supposed to do, which was lockdown. And it's in the middle of the pack for fatality ratio in Europe. But they're they're back to school, eating in restaurants, back out at bars, and their fatalities are at basically zero now. And their cases have fallen off a cliff. And they've never locked down. Now, I know people like to do this thing of, oh, but Sweden is a country where there's a splurger, splurger. It's like the special Swedish thing where everyone just does what they're told. Give me a break, okay? Uh, the, the, the Swedes didn't do what the global health community was insisting they do, and the country had a reasonable outcome under the circumstances and didn't go through the same degree of insanity that a lot of other places did. You know, there are Italian doctors that you are not hearing from now who are saying, yeah, we, we, this has essentially burned through our population. There are enough people who might have. Remember, it's antibody and T-cell immunity. Those two things combined. I just asked a, a, a top infectious disease doctor who's, uh, who I've known for a very long time. I said, is this thesis plausible? He said, it's entirely plausible. We need more testing to prove that it's true. But this would be an answer. What other people are telling you, we just didn't wear enough masks. We didn't listen to the science enough. There's just no evidence supporting this. The theory doesn't hold together. It doesn't make sense. We were all masked. We were all social distancing in New York, and we got obliterated by this thing. Absolutely obliterated. Largely, I mean, one of the reasons that the numbers were so high was because it got into, in part because of the decision of Governor Cuomo which is still the worst public health decision I've ever heard of in my life um, and, and caused many people to lose their lives to send people with COVID-19 into the nursing homes. And, and then once it's in the nursing home, it spreads like a highly infectious cold, but it can kill people. That's what you're dealing with with COVID-19. It's, you know, think about when someone in your office has a cold, you know, people, unless you have immunity to it, unless you've already been exposed to that virus, you know, people are going to be getting colds all over the place. You know this. You've seen it. You've dealt with it yourself. This is a this is the only way that you can explain what has happened. And, and that's that the, there were some parts of the country where they had some infection level, but they had not yet reached the threshold of uh, of a herd immunity level where finally it, uh, it dies off and, and goes down dramatically. Why is it that there, there are European countries that are fully open uh, right now? I mean, that are, that are open, you know, back kids in school, people eating in restaurants. You're going to tell me that, oh, they just obeyed so much better than we did. This is the assumption you'll hear from libs in this country. You know, they did their part to, to take. We haven't done our part yet. Did they do their part in Italy and in Spain when they couldn't control the disease at all? Well, what is more likely that there's a natural progression of this virus that in a community is going to occur and you do the best you can to manage it, or that some pla some places are just really great at handling this because of 
reasons that no one can really point to and other places no one cares they just want to they just want to get the virus they want to die i'm telling you that the the lower herd immunity threshold antibody and t-cell immunity combined means that if you have 20 percent of the population infected and remember it's also that 20 percent that may be the most likely because of where they work and what they do and who they're engaging with they be maybe the most among the most likely people to get infected but you reach that level and there still will be people that get this, but it's not going to have that same exponential spread. It's going to keep running into uh, running into blocks in the passage of the of the disease. And we can only we're only measuring for serology uh, through the serology tests for antibodies, not for T cell, essentially white blood cell immunity. Right. Not not we, we can find the antibody copies to the virus, but we're not looking at T-cell immunity. And that's a thing that exists as well. This is all established in the science. You can check this out for yourself. So if you get to 20% antibodies and maybe another 20 or 30% uh, T-cell immunity, which some people, that, that means that they've already been exposed to this virus in the past, may not have even known it. Um, then, then you're at a place where the spread of this disease, it's still going to exist. It's still going to be a threat, but it's not going to completely overtake the population and uh, overwhelm the system. With that, now let's talk about what the heck is Russia doing trying to hack into our vaccine research? You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Russia has been accused of trying to steal... Uh, information about COVID-19 vaccines, a big news story that broke today. Uh, this is from Reuters. The Brit- uh, Britain's National Cybersecurity Center said on Thursday that Russian-backed hackers were trying to steal COVID-19 vaccine and treatment research from institutions around the world. The UK, the US and Canada released a coordinated statement which said the attacks were being carried out by a group called APT29, also known as Cozy Bear. Remember this? We used to talk about this on the show. Cozy Bear, not to be confused with Fozzie Bear. The NCSC said it's almost certain that 95, 95% plus that Cozy Bear is part of the Russian intelligence services. So Russian intelligence trying to hack in to COVID-19 research. What, why would that be some? Well, it's quite obvious, right? Vaccination uh, vaccination research and and the actual vaccines that may be coming online, there is going to be an enormous incentive for countries to be able to be ahead of others on having immunity in their population from the vaccine. And just think of what that will do for for growth and for economic activity. Think of because because it can take months to create enough vaccine for your population so put aside for a second which places because they can't measure it yet which places might be at at limited or total herd immunity thresholds they're going to there's going to be a public perception that you need this vaccination in mass dosage to return to normal life if your country is three months six months ten months ahead of another country when it comes to because you know you're going to see nationalism kick up here a lot that's for sure uh any american company that's making vaccines we're going to want them here first this is true it's true all over the world you know and and as, as much as we'd like to think that they can just manufacture billions of doses of the vaccine and get them to everyone it's in a, it's going to be an enormous logistical challenge this stuff takes time 
This stuff isn't going to be, I know there's Operation Warp Speed, but it's not going to be that simple. So getting the the vaccine, and I also think the Russians will be like, we don't have to test this on the million people. It says it works in the data, we use it. There you go. He's not going to sit around and pretend like, oh, I have to do a controlled study trial vaccine. Boom, in the arm. Now you're good. That's the plan. They're going to be like, oh, we're going to make, we're going to start making vaccine now. As soon as they get it, they'll start making it and get ready to go. So uh, now for Russia, you might think, okay, well, we're so far ahead of Russia and we'll we'll probably be selling them vaccine very soon or sending it to them or whatever. Uh, What about China? All along, China has been leveraging this crisis for its own purposes, trying to use this as a means of getting further uh, of getting further along than other countries faster because there is there is huge economic advantage. Uh, Think about what a country can do with its economy turned on and functioning at full blast six with with six months lead time on another economy. All that production, all that market share, all that wealth creation. Right? When you start to look at this in, in, in the balance of powers around the world and you see what the Chinese government has done, they're certainly going to want to get their population vaccinated and back to work and manufacturing and doing all those things before other countries do. There's going to be a race to see who can get this done the fastest because then that country will have a tremendous economic advantage. And, and who knows, you know, who knows how long it will last and what that will lead to. But there is a there are strategic national security and just great power implications of getting the vaccine first and fastest. We'll see. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Since we're talking about hacking, we've also got a. Spent a couple minutes here addressing a pretty, pretty crazy moment in time yesterday when some of the biggest Twitter accounts in the world with tens of millions of followers were part of a massive hack scheme. Uh, you had I'm just trying to think of something. Oh, here we go. Here are the names. You had the Twitter accounts of Bill Gates Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and Joe Biden all hacked and putting out this uh, this request for Bitcoin. I mean, it's a, it was a very obvious, you know, it was, hey, hello, this is Joe Biden, and I want to give back. Please add some Bitcoin into my Bitcoin wallet below, and I will give you even more Bitcoin in return. I mean, this is not a sophisticated, a sophisticated ploy in that sense. I mean, to, to hack into this stuff seems pretty sophisticated. Uh, but sure enough, they, they estimate that uh, $100,000 was, uh, was donated, was, was fraudulently acquired through this, uh, through this mechanism. So because I remember seeing this, I was like, oh, come on. Joe Biden's Twitter account has really been hacked. Oh, yes. And Bezos and Bill Gates and Elon Musk, these huge, huge names. This is a reminder, I mean, you know, the president does communications on Twitter that even have legal implications. If the president says someone's pardoned on Twitter, is that person pardoned, for example? You know, the, uh, this, this, it's, all, it's all official archive. It's all part of the you know, official archive now, and people look at this, and it can direct the whole news cycle. We, it's, 
cybersecurity on things like this have enormous implications. Uh, it could have. Think about this. What would have happened if someone had hacked into Elon Musk's Twitter account, let's just say, which we know they had access to it. They did hack into it. And instead of saying, give me a hundred thousand or give me Bitcoin, which was, as I said, a really not a particularly clever uh, approach, but it worked to some degree. Give me Bitcoin. I'm Elon Musk. What if Elon Musk, uh, someone had hacked his Twitter account and he had said, um, I can't take it anymore. My whole company is built on a fraud. We've been cooking the books for six months. I'm sorry. You know, I'm going to go off into the woods now. What if someone had hacked into his account and tweeted that out? The stock price would look like it had fallen off a cliff. I mean, the, the, the amount of of wealth that would change hands. I mean, billions, billions of dollars. I mean, that, that's you, you would see nothing like that. In, and how do you stop that? And what do you also what do you tell people that sold their stock in a panic and maybe, you know, either took a loss on it or no longer own it and now can't, you know, I'm just that, that's just one example. That's an obvious example. What what if someone had hacked into President Trump's Twitter account and had said, you know, we, we are uh, I, re- I regret to inform the American people you know, we're, we're under attack or, you know, a, a big a big terrorist attack. I'm using this platform to let you know. A big terrorist attack is going to hit New York City in a matter of hours. Everyone, you know, please evacuate. I, I, you know, yeah, some people would look at this and say, I mean, come on, you know, and the administration would put another statement. But there would be people running for the exits. And I mean, a lot of them. So these companies, these social media platforms that we usually think of, you know, this stuff really started out for people to i mean facebook really started out so guys could see what pretty girls were in their class in college that that's just the truth i i started out in at amherst and there was something called the facebook that they gave us it was an actual book of face photos of all of your classmates and that's how the idea came to mark zuckerberg for facebook so i remember i had that and my school was one of the earlier ones to to have this uh, this online you know, thing called the Facebook. I remember it was the Facebook at the time. And uh, that's, you know, that this is what brought about the social media revolution. But we usually think of social media as, you know, cat, cat videos. I posted a photo of Tallulah today. See, if you follow me on Instagram at Buck Sexton, you'll see these things. But if you don't, you're missing out on some good Tallulah content. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I see all this stuff that, that people are posting and you usually think of it as, OK, communication for journalists. It's a way for uh, for them to uh, virtue signal to each other and bicker with each other and do the pylons about who's not woke enough. But it also is a mass communication device. I mean, Twitter for the president is kind of like a PA system from the president in the Oval Office to the whole world. And it's instantaneous and there's no filter. So I, I just think it was a reminder for many of us how powerful these different uh, these different digital social media platforms have become. I mean, they can change world events. And then when you start to also think about how there are admins in Twitter and Twitter confirmed this, uh, that they that, that, that the, the way that this social engineering hack worked, what they didn't go after the specific. They didn't go after the accounts directly. They got access to people who work for Twitter, they target people who work for Twitter, who had access to these accounts. So you got to remember that there are human beings who work at Twitter 
who have full access, the, the, the total and complete ability to go into the Twitter accounts of the most powerful people in the world and write whatever they want and see whatever they want. That's, do we ever really think about that? You know, there are people who can see, uh, you know, what, whatever. Yeah, sure. Maybe they, it would be a little too obvious to go looking at Donald Trump's DMs. Uh, I, bet, I bet that's interesting. <laughs> Whoa. But I, I bet if you, if you were to think about this, you know, Twitter has the ability. I mean, they've effectively created the largest surveillance, the largest self-induced surveillance operation in history. Same thing with Facebook. All your stuff you're putting there, all the stuff. Yeah, they're monetizing your data. There's that privacy violation. But ultimately, there are also people in the, in the back end of these websites who can see everything you do, who know every click you've made, every message you've sent. And when you're talking about, you know, corporate or political leadership, there are uh, there are some real imp- there are some real implications for all this, my friends. So they apparently got control back. I think all the blue checks for a while. I wasn't on Twitter when this happened, but all the blue checks got kicked off for a bit or that they shut down blue check Twitter, which means when you're verified, you know, fancy or verified Twitter. Uh, I got a blue check, you know, NBD. But now it's all back. Now it's all back. Got to watch this stuff. Our whole world, especially as we're getting used to being on lockdown and all this stuff, you see the world is just zeros and the world is controlled by zeros and ones now. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I don't have any intention of butting any heads. Uh, If we butt any heads, it's going to be over the safety of our children. You know, my whole purpose in politics are the three most important issues facing the Congress. Our children, our children, our children. And that's where I butt heads. That's the hill I fight on. I just, I just care, 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 care. I care about the children. The children. The children. It's, it's like a record that has skipped. The children. How many times have I told you that this is Nancy Pelosi's favorite ploy? This is, this is her favorite thing. I just, I just, I just care about, it's about the children. Yeah. Anytime any politician says it's for your safety or it's for the children, ask more questions. That's a rule. Ask more questions. What? Really? For the children? How how is shutting down schools, Nancy? You epic fraud. How is shutting down schools for the children? When children are at almost zero, almost zero risk of dying from or even getting severely ill, right? With adults, we look at deaths and mortalities, and that's the single most important metric, but there's also hospitalizations. When I say children are at almost zero risk from COVID, I don't mean they're at, at zero risk of, of di- just at zero risk of dying or almost zero. Substantially lower than the flu, which we consider to be an acceptable risk for children to be in school and have for the last hundred years, okay? So it's effectively zero risk of dying, and then you add to that, they're at also effectively zero risk of hospitalization or serious illness. So what is the problem for kids? Aren't schools essential businesses, so to speak? We, we can tell people who work in grocery stores and truckers, God bless you, across the country, you got to do your job. But teachers don't have to do their job. Why is that? 
if a teacher is in a high risk category by because of age or health concern, that teacher should be there should be special accommodations made for that teacher to teach from home and, you know, wait until they're comfortable or there's a vaccine or whatever the case may be. If you're a teacher and you're under 40, which a vast majority of K through 12 teachers are. Guess what? Go teach. You're going to be fine. You're going to be just as fine as you would be going into school year in and year out where kids can get other diseases. You know, kids can be vectors. Kids can be vectors, for example, of influenza. So they're at almost no risk of spreading it, almost no risk of hospitalization and almost no risk of dying. But we have to keep being told by complete nincompoops like Pelosi that this is about about children. It is not about the children. It's about everything but the children, unfortunately. It's uh, very, very frustrating. What's Lindsey Graham doing these days? Is is he out there telling us all about how he wants to, he's going to get accountability or he's going to get to the bottom of it, you know? Has he been on Fox News in five minutes? Because if not, that's the longest he hasn't been on Fox in a long time. What exactly is Lindsey Graham doing? Oh, he doesn't like when anyone is criticizing the Fouch. That's for sure. Play clip 18. Well, here's what I would say about Dr. Fauci. He's been around a long time. He's one of the smartest people I know. Has he been right all the time? No. We don't have a Dr. Fauci problem. We need to be focusing on doing things that get us to where we need to go. So I have all the respect in the world for Dr. Fauci. I think any effort to undermine him is uh, not going to be productive, quite frankly. Is it is it undermining to point out that the Fouch is out there and he's making all these prognosticate? Do this, do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. I'm here. I'm a doctor. You got to listen to me. It's all about the social distance. Six feet, five feet, three feet, one foot. Who knows? But let's say six. Six, a nice round number. You know, you get six eggs, half a dozen. You get six cookies. That's a lot of cookies, but they're good. I like cookies. So, you know, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just telling you, do what I say or you're probably going to die. That's that's a, is that is that too much to ask? Do what I say or you and, and your grandparents are going to die. That's that's the that's the Fauci way. We're not allowed to ask questions. I'm not allowed to say why. Why are we still listening to this guy about this? Why haven't I heard him talk about herd immunity? Why haven't I heard him address this theory that I'm seeing proposed by doctors? including Dr. Yonidas uh, uh, at Stanford University uh, Medical School, who is one of the most revered epidemiologists in the world, who's always talking about not just the, the... He was a big early voice on the fatality rate issue, but also on, on you know, how we can deal with this and, and how shutdowns are counterproductive and crazy. It's crazy. You're not stopping the virus. The virus spreads... And once it's spread, then you shut down and then you're just dealing with the virus that's already in the community. It's too late. You know, the, the, and the princess cruise ship, which you would think would have been a perfect. I mean, it's effectively a floating Petri dish. I know it's a horrible thing to think about, but it's true. And that cruise ship you had, everyone kept looking at the fatality rate. And Dr. Unitas at Stanford did that. He looked at the fatality rate on the cruise ship and figured out that it's considerably lower than what we were, remember at one point we were being told it's like three or four percent, which is Spanish flu epidemic. 
1918, millions dead. That's what we were being told. Two million people in America were going to die from this. That's what they were telling us. Um, but Ioannidis, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name right. It sounds like I'm talking about the football guy, but it's, it's Ioannidis. Um, he also looked at, he looked at the Princess Cruz data. There were, I think the, the, if memory serves, the infection rate was only about 20%. So what's more likely that one in five people just happen to be without knowing that they were even being exposed to the virus, you know, mitigating, wearing a mask, hand wipe. No, they weren't doing any of those things. So why didn't they get sick? That's where you get into built-in T-cell immunity and the body's natural response to pathogens and viruses where some people may just be more susceptible to this than others. And that there may already be a much broader immunity out there that people have. And maybe it's not a total immunity, but it's the, the body's ability to, re- to come into contact with this and not have a real, a real infection manifest itself because of their immune capabilities. We know that comorbidities make it much worse. So if your immune system is weak, we know you're in really bad shape if you get this. But if your immune system is strong, and particularly if it has already come into contact with enough coronaviruses before, again, why would only 20%, I think it was even 17% of the Princess Cruise ship overall um, have, have been positive with COVID-19? It's a question that, People, these are the we should think through these things and get answers and not just say wear a face diaper or else. So we're all being told wear a face diaper outside too. Look, you want to wear it inside. I get it. Little, you know, that's I don't think that's a to wear this outside all the time. In the middle of summer is insane. And Marco Rubio was like, if, if you know, why not? It's not a big deal. Just do it. Marco Rubio. Sometimes it's like he's in a competition with Maisie Hirono. And not in a good way. For the kind of stuff that he says, uh, you know, Trump, it was interesting. He he backed away, which I guess he had to do, but he backed away from the op ed I talked to you about yesterday where Peter Navarro was talking about the Fouch um, play 11. Look, they're all on the same team. We're all in the same team, including Dr. Fauci. I have a very good relationship with Dr. Fauci, and we're all in the same team. We want to get rid of this mess that China sent us. So everybody's working on the same line, and we're doing very well. We're doing well in a lot of ways, and our country's coming back very strong. When you look at those job numbers, we've never had job numbers like we have right now. So it's coming back very strong. Okay. Well, he made a uh, statement representing himself. He shouldn't be doing that. No, I, I have a very good relationship with Anthony. Anthony, hey, Trump and Anthony are buddies. Look, they're both New York guys, so they got that going for them, which is nice. Um, but I, I just think, I just think that people need to uh, be willing to ask their own questions at this point because the, the the public health experts just keep saying the same thing, and it doesn't work. It hasn't worked. Wear a mask mitigate stay home ruin the economy get a get biden elected i mean that's really what we're being told all the time i'm 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 done with it i've had enough i i spent months wearing a mask all the time here in new york while people were getting sick everywhere all over the place and now they're just saying oh if we i'm hearing this the cdc director saying wear a mask for two months and we'll be past this i promise you if we had 100 percent mask compliance you would not be able to statistically show how it worked you won't be you will not be able to prove that masks are the reason that this thing has gone away that's my assessment i should say 
Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, everybody, first time on the show, but I feel like I've known this guy already for years, familiar with his work, love his stuff online. Kurt Schlichter is with us now. He's an Army veteran, columnist at townhall.com, and also author of a new book, 21 Biggest Lies About Donald Trump, and you out now. Kurt, welcome to the Freedom Hub, my man. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. It's about time. So you're out in California. Let's start with this. California is the place that always gets left off the list when the Democrats are complaining about how bad COVID is right now in Florida and Texas. Somehow, particularly California, is just always absent from the list. We know that uh, Governor Newsom has scaled you guys back, so no indoor, really no indoor anything right now, other than just shopping for food. How's it going out there? And are people freaked out, or does this seem like overkill even to the, the lib population? I think uh, I, I think a lot of people are done with this nonsense, Buck. You know, I'm I'm just basically living my life. I'm I'm a lawyer, so I'm an essential service, so I could be in my palatial corner office. Um, but uh, you know, the the guys who really get hurt are the people just starting out, folks. You know, who who work in food service, folks who work at movie theaters, that sort of thing. And it's it, you know, it's a damn shame. And all the scared, freaked out, Chardonnay swilling housewives who have nothing to fill their empty lives with, but, uh, you know, panic about uh, structural racism and uh, uh, mildly infective uh, and dangerous pathogens are, are going to town. And it's it, it doesn't hurt them because they've got plenty of dough because their husbands can work from home. What it does is it hurts regular people who work for a living. And it, and it really it's really obnoxious. Is there is there any pushback? Are you seeing people finally start to say, you know, are, are you are, first of oh, all, yeah. are, the, are the beaches open out there? What's going on? Yeah, well, look, I haven't seen the beaches closed. Uh, gyms are supposed to be closed, but nobody's doing that. Uh, restaurants are just building now uh, out out into the literally like in parking lots and streets. So that now you're outside. It's 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 a joke. I had I had if dinner last night at my favorite at my favorite French restaurant in New York. And and they've had and I, and I know the I know the owners, you know, I've, I've known them for, for a while and they've basically it's like you are eating because they're not they're not really sidewalk cafes. So what they're they're making people do in New York is just take your tables that were inside and just spread them out on the New York City sidewalk. I mean, and they're way spread out. And it's like people are walking past you as you're eating dinner. This is this is what we've been reduced to now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just. It's silly. It's all theater, you know. You know the whole mask thing is is, is all theater. Look, well, I, can you tell I'm me why, why do you who, think masks are? Because I've been saying that too, and I get people that are saying, "Fuck, why don't symbol. you? Why don't you like masks?" I'm like, "It's political, it's, guys. It, it, it doesn't help it, you." It, I, look, I, I think it's look. There are really there are sick people out there who yes. need to protect themselves. Certain circumstances, sure. Protect them. And if your business wants me to wear a mask, I will either wear a mask because it's your business, or I won't go in. That's all reasonable, but let's not fool ourselves that, you know, if you're in your Prius driving down uh, Sunset Boulevard, you're so, you know, uh, with your with your you know, gagged with some uh, high hole thong that you're somehow protecting humanity from this pestilence. Hey, you're just not. Exactly. So much of it is theater. It, 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 it's much like the people who insist that you uh, uh, conceive that some men menstruate. 
Everybody knows it's baloney. You're just supposed to say it to show solidarity, and I'm just not willing to do that. Speaking of Kurt Schlichter here, he's got a new book out, 21 Biggest Lies About Donald Trump. So, Kurt, uh, the campaign made quite a quite a switch up today. They have uh, this uh, Brad Parscale has been moved into a different role from being the head of the Trump reelection campaign. They brought in this guy, Stepien. You have been uh, vocal on this. Bring us into the campaign stuff, because people are worried that myself included that the campaign so far hasn't been getting it done. Well, look, I, I, I kind of agree. I think that uh, some change was needed. Fortunately, we've got Donald Trump, who does not famously does not hesitate to tell someone you're fired. I think the uh, uh, in the last couple of weeks, the campaign has seen some real problems. There was a lot of pushback. I was one of the people pushing about the obnoxious texts we were all getting. You know, Donald Trump is very disappointed in you for not matching five times by midnight and all that garbage. And people were like, Look, it's not 2002. We are not unsophisticated. Stop treating us like idiots. It was really, really making the base angry. And a lot of us pointed out, and it changed in about 24 hours. And then Mr. Parscale got moved back to an area where he was good. I mean, remember, the Peter principle is you do a great job at one thing, then you get moved up to a level where you are incompetent. Well, he wasn't getting it done. I'm an Army colonel. If you're not getting it done, I put in a guy who does. And that's what the president did. He, he, he put Parscale back to what he's good at. Um, what we need to do, what the campaign needs to do is, I think, in, in many ways, work on some basics. Uh, there were complaints that in, in some states, you know, you could get a lawn sign very easily. And, and the middle of Pennsylvania is covered with them. But in Florida, even a max donor would call up and not be able to get a lawn sign. OK, that's the basic blocking and tackle of an organization. Right. That is basic stuff. And if you're not getting the basics done, you're not getting the hard stuff done. I'm an organization guy. I was a battalion commander. I was a deputy brigade commander. Uh, I like seeing an organization work. And it isn't all glamorous, and it's not all tweeting. A lot of it is saying, hey, how many volunteers do we have in Dade County? Okay, that's not enough. How are we going to get more? And how are we going to get pizza to them so they can eat? And where are the phones going to get set up? It, it, a lot of it's... Amateurs talk strategy. Professionals look at logistics. That's what we need. We need somebody in there who does the hard, dirty work of logistics and makes stuff happen. And I, 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 Stepien's got a, a track record of doing that. Uh, Parscale's back at doing what he's good at. And uh, I think uh, I think the president's got a great message. I have a town hall column on how he needs to get aspirational. Now, the uh, negative attacks on uh, Biden, while critical, are really a supporting act or, uh, effort. What we need is a main effort where that, that, that shows people that we have a great future ahead if we keep the conservative policies that, that really set us up well for this crisis. Imagine this crisis, Buck, if we had been in the Obama doldrums. Yeah. Would not be good. Kurt Schlichter, everybody, he's got a book oh, out, yeah. 21 Biggest Lies About Donald Trump. So let's sell some books here, Kurt. What are some of the, the, book. the biggest, the biggest lies about about Trump? Um, and it always gets me upset when people say these lies, the very, very probably the worst lies they ever tell. But go ahead. What are the biggest ones? Oh, my gosh. Look, there's so many. I could have done uh, the 21 biggest lies about Donald Trump and you part two electric boogaloo. But unfortunately, you're not allowed to say boogaloo anymore. Um I'm not even sure what it means. But, uh, I, I went with the classics, uh, including Trump is racist. 
which was a super big surprise to all his friends of all various ethnic groups and races, right up until the time he ran for president. You know, Donald Trump is probably the most, one of the the top 50 most photographed and videotaped people in all of human history. I think that's probably fair to say. And in all that time, they never got him on tape talking like, say, Democrat icon Robert Byrd talked about minority. Never once. And you know there's like armies of interns in the NBC vaults going through every tape that's ever been made about Donald Trump looking for one, one word, one insinuation, one epithet, and they haven't found it. Trying to tell you he's probably not racist. Just, you know, but facts and evidence don't really matter. And that's one of the themes of uh, the 21 biggest lies about Donald Trump and you. Doesn't really matter. They know it's a lie, or maybe they're stupid and don't know it's a lie, or maybe they just think we're stupid. But you get to other ones. You, you'll like this because you were a you were a three letter agency guy. Um, Trump loves Putin. Now, and, and so do you guys. So do the rest of you conservatives. And all I'm thinking of is, you know, I'm literally a veteran of the Cold War. I was literally in it. I know how to use an army battalion to defeat a Russian mobile ri- uh, motor rifle regiment. Uh, I've trained Ukrainian soldiers. I've actually served with Ukrainian soldiers while deployed. And, uh, you know, I find being told by a 24-year-old Vox guy who can't do a push-up that I'm not hard enough on the bear, I find that kind of disconcerting. <laughs> I like. Uh, I know exactly who at Vox you're talking about, and it's everybody at Vox. So, well... Well played. It's, 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 it's everyone. It's amazing. <laughs> Especially I, I, the kids do a push-up part. I, I mean, I, I, look, it's nice that 35 years later they decided to get hard on the Reds. That's that's great. Welcome to the party. The party's long over. We cleaned up, and now you're knocking on my door again, but that's okay. You know, and of course, Joe Biden was a big fan of the uh, nuclear freeze movement, which a KGB-sponsored disinformation and uh, – uh, yeah, Bi- well, Biden's been wrong on every foreign policy issue over the activity. last forty years. He's almost he's almost amazing in his consistency in being wrong, which is fantastic. Exactly, but, he's but, the George Costanza of American foreign policy. You, you say, uh, Joe, what's what, what's your gut tell you? He says X. They go, great. Let's do Y. Yep. Coach Schlichter, everybody, town hall columnist, check out his book Twenty One Biggest Lies About Donald Trump and You, Kurt. Come back anytime, man. Thanks for hanging out with go us. Get it. Hey, thanks for hanging out with me. Been fun. All right. Thank you, Kurt. Podcast will be out in a couple of hours. That'll air tonight at 8 Eastern. And uh, so 5 p.m. your time. Rock. Excellent. Rock and roll. You ever get out to Cali? Um, yeah, I do under normal circumstances. We should definitely get drinks or something and hang out. I mean, because other than you, all I have are... are well, okay, uh, if we I have can like open a, up a place, worst case, we can go sit on my deck and freaking yeah, drink. I mean, I've got a slew of beautiful conservative, okay, conservative women in, in the, uh, you know, Hollywood area. But uh, other than that, yeah. We'll hang. I think there's six of them. <laughs> yeah, I think I know yeah. them. All right, man. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Kurt. <laughs> you know both of them. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks for having Take me care, on. Brother. I really appreciate it. Yep, anytime. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Oh, I know we talked about uh, the Green New Deal, climate change, all that insanity a little bit earlier in the show, but I meant to do this. I meant to introduce you to a producer, Mark. Is this a real commercial? I believe so, yeah. A Burger King commercial 
about uh, I'm I'm sitting here and I'm wondering how is this possible? Uh, Burger King commercial about methane. Yeah, no, this is a real thing. We now there are now active campaigns from multinational corporations to deal with cow farts and burps. This is this is a real commercial. I thought this had to be some kind of a, a send up, some kind of a joke. Turns out, no, it is it is not. Uh, play whatever this plays the clip from the methane. The anti cow fart campaign is upon us. Play sixteen. It's got. Farting. Must be me. This is real, folks. The anti-cow fart campaign. It's a thing now. Washington Post reports that cows produce excess methane as enzymes break down food in their digestive system. This methane gets released through burping and flatulence, and its environmental impact is significant. Cattle contribute 14.5% of the world's global greenhouse gas emissions. And methane warms the planet 86 times more than carbon dioxide over 10 to 20 years. According to the EPA, the livestock industry is directly responsible for approximately a quarter of climate change in the industrial age. Gassy cows, everybody. They're coming for your gassy cows. Look, this is not going to reduce it enough, though. They are going to try to take that steak or that burger out of your mouth. Just give it time. It's going to happen. They can't help themselves. They're that up in your business. They're that insistent on controlling every aspect of your life. They're going to want to control what you put in your mouth, what, what your dietary needs are. And I got to tell you, th- there was this huge push in the last few years to create all these burger-like substitutes. And I even was willing, I tried a couple. When I lived in D.C., I tried a few of them. They're not good. They're just not good. Producer Mark, you ever tried those things? I haven't, like the, no. The very you know, beyond meat or better than burger or whatever they call these things. My wife really liked the one from actually Burger King, but she doesn't eat red meat because it hurts her stomach. Well, that's yeah, so that's, that's like me, that's like me not eating gluten, which is horrible. But unfortunately, I can't. Right? I mean, I wish I could sit there and eat French bread and you know brie and baguettes all day, but I would die. So yeah, I mean, I get that. Um, I, I mean, look, I guess they're not like inedible, but they're pretty they're pretty bad. You know, it's sort of like a veggie burger. A veggie burger is a fine accoutrement to my actual burger burger. As long as you put some like melted cheese on it and some mayo and things like you know what I mean? Then then the veggie burger is kind of acceptable. So you use the veggie burger as a topping to an actual burger? Yeah, pretty much. Why? Like if you if you really want to eat a veggie burger, what you do is you put your meat burger and you make a veggie burger sandwich of your meat burger, you know? Is that so just a way the to middle, eat less carbs? It, like I don't understand. Veggie veggie patty on top and on bottom. I, I'm just getting creative here. Just telling you what I'm, what I'm up to, the kind of the kind of things that I do. I'm a man who likes to, you know, 
likes to experiment with Sounds like with that sandwich stuff. from KFC where it was the two pieces of fried chicken with bacon and cheese in the middle. I forgot what they called that, but... I remember when I worked at the NYPD, there was this Italian sandwich place, and this is when I used to eat gluten. I didn't know that, you know, I couldn't. And they used to go to this Italian sandwich place out in Brooklyn, and guys would drive like 45 minutes. They'd come back with a sandwich, and they'd get cardboard boxes full of these sandwiches with like, you know, prosciutto and provolone and all the and the sandwiches were incredible. You know, a, re- a really good sandwich goes a long way. I will say. I'm, see, this is what happens. The show, I get, I get hungry when we, do, when we do this radio show. We start talking about food. I start thinking. I'm like, how many people listening to this right now are probably are cooking dinner or sitting down to dinner? Probably a fair amount. They're already eating. I, I still have to finish a show before I can eat. I want to order barbecue tonight. Now I really am thinking out loud about all this stuff. All right, all right. Oh, there was one other, one other thing I want to get to. Um, this is kind of a, a mulligan round here of things that I was hoping to address on the show and, and hadn't had the time yet. Remember I told you yesterday, AOC had the, I, well, maybe the dumbest take possible, the dumbest take imaginable for why there has been a spike in crime in New York City. It was kind of, it's kind of hard to fathom that anybody could come up with this who's a person in public life, a public figure. But no, it happened. And uh, here she is, um, or rather, here is Governor Cuomo, pardon me, responding to AOC's almost incomprehensibly stupid analysis of why there's a crime spike in New York City. Please play 14. An incorrect, I don't know what she said, uh, so I have no comment on what she said, but uh, people have theories. An incorrect theory doesn't wind up being correct because there's a void. Uh, And I think we have been talking about what's going on. I don't think there is one answer. But I think you uh, raised a good point last week. I think there are a number of contributing factors. Uh, and you put all those factors together, uh, and that's what you're seeing going on. There's no one factor, and that's why it's a little more complicated. You know, in politics, they want to be able to say it's just this. It's not just this. There are a number of factors. Uh, but I don't think... Uh, yeah, it is factually impossible that somebody committed a crime so they could pay their rent. If you can't pay your rent, you cannot be evicted right now. Yeah, um, the only intelligent thing he said was the last thing. Everything else he said was crap. But anyway, or at least it's a dodge from the fact that we all know why the crime spike is happening. So I actually gave Cuomo Cuomo gave him too much credit. Ah, uh, so, yeah, what he does says he doesn't know what AOC says. I'm sure he did know, but he didn't want to criticize her. Of course, because she has a bigger Twitter audience that would crush him. Crush him! Destroy him! All right, roll call next. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Team Buck. It's time for Roll Call. Producer Mark, how much would it take if we set up a GoFundMe to have you sing the cow fart song? uh, How much money would it require for you to sing that on air? It would take a lot of money. But you do think it is catchy. I mean, it, it is a little catchy. I mean, come on. Compared to Baby Shark, which one is It's like on a scale of one to Baby Shark, which Baby Shark is by far a 10, maybe even a 20. It's like a six. You know, I actually actually realized that 
Baby Shark singing on radio should be banned by the Geneva Convention because it is a form yeah. of psychological warfare. Because if I start singing Baby Shark on this show, you're going to be like, why is he doing that? It is guaranteed that later today or later tonight, at some point, you will have it stuck in your head. There's, there's no way around it. There's nothing you can do. It will stick in your brain like this scum that gathers around the, you know, the orange scum that gathers around the edge of the uh, shower stall or, you know, whatever, right? That stuff, that's, you know what I'm talking about. Yes, yeah, so, so I actually used to work uh, for my alma mater being the DJ at basketball games, just playing music. And every year the women's team has what I want to be day or something like that. I think they actually changed it to kids in fitness day. So they had like 10,000 screaming children, elementary school children. And to entertain them, I think Baby Shark was played at least four times, maybe five. I wanted yeah, to was, shoot myself. That 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 I, re- I remember the instrument of psychological warfare against adults known as Barney the Purple Dinosaur. Because I, 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 I had to babysit for my, my younger siblings sometimes, and that was like, if you wanted the kid to just be quiet, you would put on Barney the Purple Dinosaur. Does he still exist? I'm sure he does. He was so like, popular. Oh, hi, kids. I'm Barney the Purple Dinosaur. Caring means sharing. And Listen, you just... I was obsessed with Barney as a child. Oh, so you knew about Barney. Of course I did. Yeah, that's, you're, you're of the age. That's right. You're like I my, you're like my uh, sibling's age, or my youngest one, so... Yeah, that's right. You would have. I was like right bar. around Barney, but bef- but before Teletubbies. So like, I saw the Teletubbies and thought that was weird. Yeah. I yeah. love you. You love me. We're. <laughs> I remember, dude. I remember the whole thing. Yep. Oh my gosh! Parents listening to this of a certain age are like, "Buck, stop!" I had the stuffed animals and everything. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I remember when I was a kid. It was Cabbage Patch Kids were just the rage, man. Everyone loved Cabbage Patch Kids. That was the thing. That was really, um, and also, th- I mean, Cabbage Patch Kids, then you got a little older and a little cooler. It was all about Thundercats, which were human beings kind of mixed with a cat that were wearing, like, you know, G-strings in these cartoons. <laughs> the whole thing made no sense. But anyway, some of you know what I'm talking yeah, about. I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, I'm just saying. Sounds like Th- something you, know you the find on the internet cartoons? after a night of drinking. The Thundercats was Thunder Thundercats. It was uh, it was pretty cool. I was a big GI Joe guy though. That was my. That was That's my not surprising. Yeah, of course. All right, Facebook.com/slash/BuckSexton or TeamBuck at iHeartMedia.com if you want to email us. And remember, tomorrow's Friday or producer Mark's favorite day because it Ugh. is the day that we get to play all your voicemails. Eight four four nine hundred. Two eight two five eight four four nine hundred uh buck and producer Mark loves it when you call in and, and tell him that he he's a grouchy snuggle bear. He likes that in the voicemail, so you can always say that. Grouchy snuggle bear, that's a new one. Yeah, yeah. We're just trying to see. Someone's gonna call it and say it. You have to listen to it. So there we go. Eight four four nine hundred two eight two five eight four four nine hundred buck. That is the number. Please light us up with some uh Wonderful voicemails. We love hearing from you guys. We'll play them tomorrow. That's always fun. All right. Scott Buck, I download every podcast you offer. However, I haven't heard your Kaiser Wilhelm impersonation in a while. It's one of my favorites. Thank you, Scott from Orange County, California. Haktung. Well, Scott, now you've heard the Kaiser. Kaiser Wilhelm initially started as a representation of the person that Bill de Blasio would have had to be if he were, in fact, 
called his original name, which was Warren Wilhelm. Yeah, ja, guten Tag. So Warren Wilhelm, born in Massachusetts, the state in northeastern United States, yeah. He became Billy de Blasio because he wanted to run for the office. Nine. That's what happened. So he's the Kaiser. And now the Kaiser de Blasio is saying, you cannot eat the food, you cannot go out the side, it is all I want you to do all the time. And we all have to say, okay, Kaiser Wilhelm, okay, please don't ruin the city any more than you've already ruined it. I never thought one of your ridiculous voices would actually teach me something. I had no idea about that. You didn't know that was his name? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Warren Wilhelm. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Think about that. It's a little bit tougher to get union guys be like, hey, uh, who, are you vo- who are you voting for today? I'm going for this guy, Warren Wilhelm. He wears like a pith helmet, you know, served his time in the trenches. You know, it's like, I don't know, different different kind of deal. I've never heard of a politician having a stage name. Interesting. Oh, and a lot of politicians have changed their names. Huh. Um, look, uh, I think John Kerry's name before, I think his family name was originally Cone. And then it was changed to carry. Uh, Barack Obama went by the name as an adult, Barry Obama. And even at one point, I believe, Barry Satoro uh, when he was younger. But definitely Barry. Producer Nick, am I, what am I? Well, he's got something for us here. Am I saying something that's... Uh, that's in- Bill Clinton Bill is Clinton. William. Yeah. William Blythe. You know, I knew that, but I had totally, I had totally forgotten that one. I had totally forgotten that. Yeah, these guys, all they change their names. Change their names all the time. Um, I'm trying to think who else were, were, was a big... There's, there's definitely one that I'm forgetting that people are going to yell at me later that I'm forgetting. But yeah, a lot, a lot of politicians have, have changed their names, and um, that's, uh, that's just part of it, man. It's all branding. It's all branding. All right. Adam, Buck, you stumbled upon a great idea. Each frequent guest needs an 80s action hero intro or maybe a wrestling intro Cage match to see who gets the Undertaker's intro. Shields high. Producer Mark, did I stumble onto that idea? I think we were talking. You uh, you were talking about Randy Savage yesterday, about a Randy that wrote oh, in. Oh, yeah. yeah. Step into a Slim Jim. Remember that? But realistically, wouldn't if there was a cage match between our guests, Jesse Kelly would win. He's like he's the, tall, he's the seven tallest. Seven for five, yeah. He's the tallest. I don't know, you know. You know there, there'd be some tough conservative matchups. You know, uh, you know, Bongino's a big guy and, and does does grappling training. But, you know, you get Seb Gorka in there. Dr. G is like the mountain from Game of Thrones. He is he is so much bigger than you realize from seeing him on TV and stuff. Dr. G has hands the size of oven mitts. I'm telling you. So, you know, you, you, the, the steel cage match of conservative media personalities, you'd have some interesting matchups for sure. Um, but, yeah, no. Yeah. Jesse Kelly is like six foot. Nine, but he's sl- he's you know he's a slender fellow because he does keto, of course. So as he likes to show everybody, his he, version of he keto can still is be a, muscular is a is a lot of yeah, but it's a lot of uh, Philly cheesesteaks. That's uh-huh. his keto. Yeah, he's one of those people that eats like a he eats like a you know a human hippopotamus or something and never gains a pound. Good job, Jesse Kelly. I wish Showing, I could do that. Yeah, producer producer Mark and Buck here are like no more mac and cheese. Time to start eating salads. Uh, another another time, another day. I'll I'll start my uh, my fitness routine soon. Uh, let's see, Kyle, Buck. I live in California and can sum up the state of the state based on a recent neighborhood walk. Bum camps everywhere. Human fecal matter on the sidewalk near my house. 
and someone wearing a face mask outdoors, but pulling it down to take a hit on his joint. (laughs) Yeah, of course. But I can't go to a restaurant or have a drink at a bar because those are public health risks. I'm moving out of state soon and won't miss it. It's a beautiful place to live, made miserable by many of the people who live here and definitely by those who govern. Well, Kyle, I believe that for sure. Ah. Yeah, man, it's uh, California is an amazing state. I just I wish the conservatives had come up with a plan to take. To, well, it used to be Republic. People forget this. I mean, Ronald Reagan was the governor of California. California used to be consistently, uh, you know, in, in election after election, used to go for the GOP. And it wasn't really until the 90s and the huge waves of predominantly illegal immigration that the state started to flip. Um, and, and, and now it's just a it's a Democrat ultra stronghold i mean it's not even not even close and it's just a shame because republicans we we need one look we've got texas but they're trying to take texas we really need one large population blue state to to go our way i mean i I think the answer is florida producer mark will be happy to hear that we need we need you know a half a million you know just red as can be republicans from states that are forever lost new york and california to just flood down to Florida, register and vote. That's that's the real strategy. And I'm serious. We should do this. People should. Florida's great. No state income taxes. Uh, obviously, fantastic weather. A lot, lot of upside there. A lot of upside. All right, Close take, to the Caribbean. Let's not make the housing market go up before we move. That's a good uh, point. Come on. Don't do this until producer Mark and I have moved first, yeah. everybody. L- let us find houses first, then you can go. Indeed. All right. Zach. Buck, I thought you'd find this funny. I am door dashing for some extra cash, and I always listen to your show while I do it. Anyways, on one order, I went into a restaurant without a mask, and the manager yelled at me for not wearing one. My response was, do you expect your patrons to eat with their masks on, too? I'm in the store for five seconds to pick up an order. He had no response, explains lockdown libs perfectly, as always, shields high. Well, Zach, good for you, man, standing your ground. You're 100% right. What kind of dumbassery is that? You know, you, you go in there for five seconds. Just, this is like when I walk through my lobby of my very tall apartment building in New York, which is full of people. I walk through the lobby for five seconds. And then outside, I'm not, I don't have to wear a mask. I'm going to put a mask on for a five-second walk? Please. I want to tell these lockdown libs, go blankety-blanking, blank your blank. Blank, blank. Family show, so I got to keep it clean. Um, Patrick Buck, PS4 Suggestion. The Last of Us, The Last of Us 2, amazing story, post-pandemic. Look for the similarities written into this story well before any COVID. Great game, better story. Okay, Patrick, thank you. Producer Mark, you know what he's talking about? Yeah, I've heard of the game. It's a very, very popular game. Have you ever played it? No. Remember, I play sports games. I will tell you, uh, the Snow Princess and I at dinner recently, I brought up the possibility, specifically brought to my attention by both my two uh, fantastic patriotic uh, red meat eating brothers that we were all going to that, that I was going to get PS4 so we could all play Call of Duty together and also Jesse Kelly has been saying that he wants me to do this so that we can play on the same team uh, and or try to kill each other playing against each other in Call of Duty and then talk smack over headsets which obviously would be a lot of fun and I brought this up the Snow Princess and then she went on this whole thing about you have a lot of things that you're trying to do and accomplish like get back into shape and like a Malta podcast and a hundred other things. Maybe 
setting up an addictive entertainment machine in your own home, as opposed to at least only at your brother's place that will take hours and hours out of your life. Maybe that's not what the team buck really wants you to be doing right now. She didn't say it in quite that way, but that was pretty much the message. And I got to say a message was received on that one for now. I was like, yeah, it's just going to make things harder. If I get one, you, you don't have one, right? Producer Mark. Of course I do. What do you think I do all day when I'm not working? You have a PS4. Yeah. How did I not know this? Yeah. I'm alone all week. Yeah. Cause then I know Mrs. Mark is working over at the, uh, working at, at her job. Yeah. Um, What's your favorite game? Uh, I usually rotate throughout the sports games. Right now I'm playing NHL. I'll play uh, the NBA game, Madden. Yeah. See, I'm going to break down. It's so much fun. I'm going to break down and probably go. Just don't tell the Snow Princess. I'm going to have to hide it from her somehow. (laughs) Just put it in a cabinet and don't tell her I'm going to tell her it's like part of my uh, radio gear or something and hope that, you know, I'm going to have to like put a different cover on it. I'm going to have to figure out something. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to have to keep it with my radio gear and be like, don't touch that. You know, whenever anyone goes near my radio stuff, I'm like, don't touch that. Uh, so I'll have to just do that and hope that she'll figure it out real fast. Though, so that's not good. Anyway, I'll, I'll think of something. Um, yeah, no, I think uh, I think that might have to happen. Producer Nick, do you have a producer Nick? Put me on the on the text here. Do you have a PS4? He's got kids, man. That that means that's yeah, probably he's more tough. likely to have a Nintendo Switch because those nope. are he does not he does not have kids one. like says, the Nintendo nope, games. No time. This is the thing, man. Like I'm at some point, I'm just gonna be like, yeah, I'm done with trying to save the country, and I'm just gonna find a nice, warm place with a view of some water in Florida, and just play PS, play PS4 all day, and cook and read books and be left alone. Oh yeah, we'll we'll have a nice outdoor setup, maybe on a projector next to a pool. There we go, and a smoker outside somewhere as well. I'm into it. Perfect. Into it. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. More roll call, everybody. Remember to go to BuckSexton.com. I'm going to be posting a week in review story there where I just kind of tell you what I think is biggest takeaways from the week. So I'll have a and it'll be an editorial that's going up tomorrow. So uh, please go to BuckSexton.com. And uh, yeah, good things there. Easy to listen to the podcast there now, too. We have a new producer, Mark. Have you seen this? We have a new a new button. When you go to BuckSexton.com, you just you, you open the page and there's a, pl- a plug and play. You, you just press play. Wait, is it up yet, or did I get ahead of us? I might have. I might be ahead of things here. Darn it! It's going to be might. there soon. I mean, there. Is, yeah, I mean, there's always a place right on the homepage. No, there's a, but there's an auto play now. That's oh. going to be. All you have to do is press play on the bit. Anyway, well, you really should make sure these things are enacted before you say them on the radio. It's going to be soon, though. It's going to be soon, folks. Trust me. Trust me. Um. All right, Dan. Buck, while I appreciate that you reference the Asian-American experience as a counter to the BLM leftist narrative, as an Asian-American from the Garden State, New Jersey, I should point out that it's not that simple. You and I are around the same age, yet the messages we received growing up were quite different. Every step of the way, I was told I had to be better, much better, than my non-Asian counterparts to attain the same success. As it turns out, that message was correct. The Harvard lawsuit from rejected Asian applicants shows it. Simply put, I utterly destroyed every standardized test I ever took, and you'd be astonished at the colleges that didn't accept me. And just for good measure, it did not matter that I was all league on my track team. Well, damn it. Thanks for writing in. And yeah, no, I, what you're saying is true. And I, I know it's true. Um, and I, I, you know, I went to a scholarship school, a scholarship private high school in New York where everyone goes for free. And I'm the Asian students in my class were all very tense about their college application experience because 
they knew that even with even with, uh, you know, sixteen hundred boards and a straight A average, they were going to get into a great school, but they might not get into Harvard. So and I knew people like that. Uh, but, yeah, no, you're, you're correct on that, Dan. So thank you for, for writing in and, and bringing that to our attention. Thanks for listening to the show. Uh, team, that's going to be it for today. Tomorrow we're going to have a great show, a lot of fun. Make sure you tune in. Pass the buck. Please get a friend. Please, please get a friend to listen to the podcast of the Buck Saxon Show this week. Until next time, Shields high.